half degrees in fighter and I am full of general knowledge that will not help you win a pub quiz. I am Tom. I have a bartender with an arts degree and I'm full of knowledge that may help you in a pub quiz. And so what we're talking about today is our podcast, It's Artist, where we talk about artists and mental health, um, disasters, disaster artists, if you will. And basically, we're going to be looking at kind of that history of art and, and, and mental health issues and how that overlaps and affects us right now. And some of the myths and legends that kind of peripherate into our like um, modern day culture. Mm. And today we're talking about Vincent van Gogh. Yeah, so the big one. The big one. The big one. Um, as a context as well, I'm not really that familiar with the art world. I'm more familiar with things like context and the little nuts and bolts of things that were going on around that particular t- time. And you also know a little bit more about psychology than me. Um, I know more about art than details. I'm very good at the art, very bad at the details. So um, together we should have at least one story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, one one story to tell you. Um, So so let's start at the beginning. Um, Yeah, he was born in 1853, March in uh, Groot Zandert. It's a predominantly like Catholic. Um, portion of the Netherlands and he was growing he was like back then it was like upper middle class family mm. so he's uh, both his parents held prominent positions in society as well as sort of like well paid positions in society mm. and this is also sort of 50 years coming out of the industrial revolution so you see more of this expansion of that like middle class and then sort of like in his early years his mum was very encouraging of all of her children to do art, which I'm assuming probably was commonplace for like like upper middle class folk back then. Mm-hmm. And Vincent van Gogh being the eldest surviving child of that family was showed very much like a lot of talent at a very early age. And then sort of um, we can only really guess too much about his like, early childhood and things like that as, um, you know, it all happened over, well over 100 years ago. And so we do know quite a bit about when he was. Hang on a sec. <laughs> Let me restart. Just take a minute. Yeah, so he was born in 1856 um, in the Netherlands uh, to an upper middle class family. Uh, his mum, from an early age, was uh, very encouraging of him to practice art and he showed quite a lot of like promise in said art. When he was sort of in his adolescence, he was um, given a job by his brother at an art dealership and then moved into like his own apartment where he fell in love with his landlady's daughter. Unfortunately, he was rejected by the landlady's daughter and after like a year or so of um, quote unquote being like depressed and very um, insular, his housemates, at the, uh, the people living with him at the time saying they were becoming very religious and very pious, he moved on to focus his attention towards the church in like 19, 1876. However, um, after trying and failing priest exam twice, he eventually got into the church only to be fired for giving up his um, dwellings to a homeless person in the community that he was serving while he was living in some modest dwellings. As at the time, the church was a bit more focused on the prestige of the church than mm. the actual message just that they were trying to preach. After that, he was pushed into art school in the 1880s 
and he eventually came home for a little bit to sort of practice drawing mm. and uh, continue his studies. In uh, 1882, he uh, caught gonorrhea and fell in love with a prostitute and they started living together under the stipend provided by his younger brother, Theo. And then that sort of fell apart as he became more and more focused on his art and as his health declined, he was unable to support the family that he had sort of taken in. And then um, 1885, uh, continuing to practice his painting skills, uh, moving around different places in Europe, onwards to 1886 where he started this sort of really compact period of time where he was painting a lot and that involved his entire life where he was obsessed over it. He was only consuming bread and tobacco and coffee and it was during this time that it's theorised that he contracted syphilis as well. In 1886, he moved to Paris and um, started to collaborate with the artists around there, drawing inspiration from the people currently doing work um, and doing more experimentation. And then 1890 started having, it was in the early 1890s that he started having his series of mental breakdowns. And that's when the famous cutting off of the ear happened and he spent a bit of time in um, like a hospital, eventually culminating in his death at 37, mm-hmm. where he uh, shot himself in the chest with a pistol, dying later of uh, complications due to that, as opposed to the actual wound itself. Mm. So that's, yeah, pretty succinct uh, summary of all the big points. Um, as, as like a kind of an art student, we talked a lot about, you know, uh, Vincent van Gogh, kind of where he sits in that kind of post-impressionist world. And the fact that he, he, um, he sort of started in the more traditional Dutch style. Obviously, he's from the Netherlands. And he had that kind of, um, you know, brown toned so that's the potato eaters um really famous well not really famous but one of his more famous pieces of work it's kind of like early early in before he moved to paris i believe um yeah the yeah yeah it was just not um not really what we think of when we think of van gogh it was really dark really dingy a bit more traditional um not quite that traditional Dutch style but not quite impressionism either so it's sort of in between um and I mean it makes sense um because you know you you learn from what's around you um and yeah obviously he's moved to Paris he's been introduced to the impressionists and we can see that kind of change happen in his work so we're talking about uh works like Cafe Terrace at Night which is one of my favorites it's just the um kind of getting into that approximating colours, adding the vibrancy, you know, all that sort of stuff um, that you have, that you associate with Impressionism or post-Impressionism, those brushstroke works and stuff like that. Um, and obviously Sunflowers is is kind of quintessential Van Gogh. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, it's good. Um I think everybody who studied art in high school had to do this painting perhaps, or maybe that was just me. But, um, yeah, really just focusing on that kind of gestural painting style that we know the Impressionists for. Like you can see the movement of them painting that brushstroke in each thing. Um, 
and a, a lot of this work. So starting to think 1889, um, the bedroom. So this is really, he's spending a lot of time with the impressionists at this point. Um, but if we look really closely at some of his more famous work, so Starry Night, um, obviously his most, most well-known painting, Starry Starry Night. Um, That's the only one I actually know of his prior to learning about him for this. Yeah, so um, for me, the ones that I knew were Starry Night and then they told us about sunflowers in high school. Um, Obviously, going to uni, I had to learn a little bit more. But um, he basically did this while he was – yeah, this was done one when he was in the asylum, so receiving care um, for mental health. Uh, he actually painted that from the asylum, and yeah, the last one, the last one, famous mostly because it is the last one. Um, one of the last ones is the um, church at Orb- Orbers. Orbers. Anyway, um, and these ones as well, these like last couple, he was also receiving care um, because he, yeah, lived with a physician or was treated by a physician. Anyway, but yeah, so we're just um, talking just generally where that all connects up with the timeline there is most of these works were in the like really – end portion of his life like quite close to the end I think the dates we're looking at are you know ton of these are in 1889 um potato eaters 1885 so over the course of four years really all the way up to 1890 yeah obviously he probably died at that point um but yeah so most of the works we know from him um were painting in actually quite a short period of time, quite close to the end of his life. Um, cool. That was good. Yeah. So, I don't know, I think just in general, kind of a general conversation about Van Gogh and his um, mental mental health, I guess, is the kind of the next, like, area I was going to... Um, well, with um, with what I knew about him before sort of looking into this, I suppose the two most famous things is that he was an absinthe drinker and that he cut off his own ear. Yeah. Um, what I found most interesting is that that was a relatively short period of time where he was consuming absinthe in such high quantities and it was much earlier in his phase of life, short life, than um, – like you would think considering like he's famous for his paintings and he's also famous for um, yeah, drinking absinthe and cutting off his own ear, which are also two relatively separate um, events that happened in his part in his life. I believe mm-hmm. that he was um, um, consuming absinthe in its, in most quantities whilst he was living with um, 
his partner because she was also um, regarded as an alcoholic and consume absinthe. Mm. And back then that was sort of the working class drink of Europe as well. It's very, very high percentage wormwood-infused substance that can cause um, alcohol at very high percentages can cause things like hallucinations and can cause prefrontal cortex damage. But having the infusion of wormwood would also enhance its like hallucination-causing effects, yeah. which could help, say, uh, alleviate the symptoms of um, a painful disease such as um, gonorrhea, which there was absolutely no treatment for in the um, mid to late 1800s, yeah. as we didn't even invent um, penicillin until the early 1900s. Yeah, so I guess that's kind of like maybe not the start of what we would consider uh, his decline because I think historically he had a like, – he didn't cope well with things like rejection. He didn't cope well with, um, like, it was safe to say he wasn't really a people person. Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah. So when we're talking about, you know, his sort of awkward social spot and then on top of that drinking heavily, you can see Should we start it again then from, say, being rejected by the... Um, landlady yeah um, I mean we can talk back about it I like to have I liked how everything was like just laid out and then we can just talk back and forth over that now that it's all laid out yeah easy yeah yeah so if we talk about yeah obviously romantic yeah well so he's um, this first major relationship that we know about being uh, one with a, a prostitute is kind of uh, starts to comment on his um, insecurities and whatnot around those kind of bonds, which if from like his very early life um, being rejected by his first major love and then moving on to something like the church to try and find some sort of higher plane of existence outside of his life to like leech onto mm-hmm. and then only finding more rejection in that and each step of this process always returning to the one consistent in his life, which has been the art and his family in terms of the support that his older brother and and his mother and father have given him. And then, you know, so you get this situation where you've got a, a person that's been described as emotionally volatile always, sort of like very obsessive and, um, can be prone to be irritable and things like that, irregardless of sort of what's going on. And then you combine the sort of lifestyle context of like mm. you're consuming lots of alcohol and you've contracted um, diseases, which are the treatment for STDs in that particular time was the use of heavy metals and sort of more holistic um methods of say you would be shoving them down the urethra and like leaving them there to Mm. sort of clean up the gunk and whatnot so it's very very painful and it could take months upon months of recovery if you even recovered at all so every time he'd have like an event or something like that it's puts him in hospital takes him away from his art and the things that he's using sort of self-medicate and things like that yeah i think I think, yeah, that kind of like that sense of like um, 
obsessive emotion almost like this kind of the vibe you get and then just seeing the one thing that's in front and just that obsessive drive to one thing and then the rejection from that feeling things kind of a hundred percent all the time you know the first thing the thing in front is the only thing you know i can see how that can um lead to kind of an emotionally volatile life but um just take a break my brain's not working i actually think we were doing much better last time less structured <laughs> right now we're trying to think um yeah we feel it feels a bit less like the only else might help as well like sort of bridging that gap between the unstructured and structured is if we had like a whiteboard in front of us oh, that we yeah, had, no, that we had the dot points on already that we would just like look out to refresh yeah i think that's a good idea i think that we just do what we did last time with a whiteboard in here i've got whiteboards yeah, yeah. <laughs> good idea i got whiteboards yeah. <laughs> i got whiteboards for days don't even worry i'll pick one up from the studio <laughs> but oh my god um yeah i think just like obviously we talk about we've talked about this before but like um yeah we're just thinking about like kind of like that that sort of rejection to rejection to rejection and then the only constant being art and the only thing that couldn't let you down was what you could make and the art you had and then on top of that i think he sold one piece while he was alive so even that was (laughs) not like you know uh, I've also read that, um, so the, what also would send him into these like sort of insane fits weren't so much his substance abuse because that was kind of isolated into that particular time of his life that we were mm. just talking about where I think the, um, the, the comments um, that he would make later in his life would be anti doing anything yeah. except art. Like if oh, you yeah. even remotely wanted to party outside of trying to perfect your trade craft and you could almost say that's an overcompensation for this mm. um apparent uh self-doubt and self-criticism because like from this life of rejection but also the self probably the self-feeding mm. cycle where he would um expect things to play out a certain way because of his current context and conditionings and keep in mind is we're very lucky today that we can cure stis yeah. where we that was not the case back then. So upon um, being in his mid twenties, it's uh, I imagine um, things like marriage and having children when he um, had mm. both gonorrhea and syphilis would be sort of out the window. And biologically yeah. speaking, contracting gonorrhea and syphilis can also lead to uh, in, uh, infertility as well. So it's like even if he could find a wife and they could have children together, he may not be able to have children or a family mm. or this quote-unquote normal life. Which is interesting that he did take up, kind of take up with a woman who was already pregnant when he met and then to be talking about fertility issues and stuff. But also just that kind of the mental place of having those at that time so I believe gonorrhea would eventually pass. It wouldn't be pleasant, but it would eventually pass. I'm not 100% on that. Not 100%. But syphilis was just like of incurable. Of variations between your, people, but yeah. yeah. Like you just, if you had syphilis, that was your death sentence. It was kind of like when and how rather than anything else. So I imagine receiving a syphilis diagnosis doesn't do wonders for your 
mental state. <laughs> oh, definitely. So, like, syphilis uh, comes in stages, mm. and um, the first stage is kind of like a, an initial infection where you have like pustules. Oh, like, yeah. It's like a painful rash. And then that will go away, but the, that's just the infection moving into your body into kind of like a dormancy um, phase. Mm -hmm. And with all diseases, there's like variations between each person based on their genes and their immune systems. But syphilis mm -hmm. can do a few things over the course of a person's lifetime. It can move into their brain and cause damage to their prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. which is where we host of all of our decision-making and things like that. Mm -hmm. And to sort of stack on top of it, the way that we would treat those um, diseases back then involved putting heavy metals into our body, which could also further damage ourselves and yeah. our ability to like rationalize and think and our body's ability to repair yeah. from these illnesses. Yeah. But it's also very painful at every yeah. step of the way. Yeah, definitely. And so there's the, the rejection, which is, you know, if you're not really a people person, you're not really a coper, that's not great. Um, and the the STIs, so the physical illness, and then the alcoholism, and then on top of that, kind of the general sort of um, lack of success. I think was the kind of thing we talked a bit about it last time. But like his younger brother was essentially, you know, paying his paying Van Gogh's way, right? And, and no older sibling wants to deal with that. <laughs> And even if the dynamic was like different and it was all fine, you're still living off of somebody else's charity, and I'm sure that doesn't feel great. Um, yeah, so he, especially when you already have deep seated feelings of inadequacy, yeah, and rejection and stuff like that, and you just yeah. So he's on terrible names. I don't remember his name, but he had a housemate later in his life, mm -hmm. um, and they and the housemate was also an artist and paid by his brother to live and uh, take care of Vincent. Is it Paul Gojin? Gojin? I never know how to say that, right? I believe so. Yeah. Um, and there was a, they had a massive blowout because one of his paintings actually sold for, I think, 500 francs or something like that, which was apparently really decent back then. Yeah. Um, so that he was really happy he was going to be going to Paris. And Vincent sort of had a mental breakdown and chased him out to the streets with a knife. And wow. the way it was described is that he turned around and because I believe this is all in a letter to Vincent's brother as well. And Van Gogh was standing there with a knife and there was kind of like locking eyes and Vincent realized sort of came out of this like trance of his Obviously, little yeah. episode and then um, just quietly went back to the house and that was it. That was the end of their friendship. Yeah. But like such a long-standing <laughs> friendship, that's your best friend. He sells a painting and your feelings of inadequacy take over and you grab a knife and chase him down the street. Doesn't mm. sound very... Cool. Yeah, it doesn't sound super like controlled, you know. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a. Um, and reportedly, this is the phase of his life as well where he wasn't consuming, say, absinthe, um, mm. and it and it was. I'm not exactly familiar when he cut his ear off, but I believe it was around that time as well. Yeah.